Good. I, I can see all of you. I hope you can see me. I, yes, I think. Firstly, thank you, Michael, very much for the introduction. And thank you, Ari, for all of your work, for, not just for us, not just for bringing us here, but for all that you've done all these years to enrich the Jewish cultural life of the community. We're, we are in awe of you. I grew up in the 40s and 50s in an Orthodox Jewish family. My father, of blessed memory, was a Talmud scholar. He was a businessman, but he was also a Talmud scholar. Or I should say he was a Talmud scholar. He was also a businessman. His first love after his family was study of Torah. In fact, my, I was born in Seattle, Washington, and my parents moved from Seattle to New York when my older sister uh, graduated public school. We didn't have a day school in those days in Seattle because the resources for Jewish education for girls had dried up, and so my parents just simply picked up and moved. They were luckily were part of a family business that they could do this. My father was engaged in a Talmud shir every single day of his life before, except perhaps on Tisha B'Av, but before he would go off to work every day, he had a shiur um, with Rabbi Rachman, uh, Allah um, Shalom for 32 years, and then my father continued after uh, after Rabbi Rachman moved away. And my sisters and I saw this every single morning in our in our dining room. Rabbi Rachman and and some other rabbis would join uh, in at various points, and we would put away, we reshelved these heavy volumes of the Talmud. But I never actually looked. I knew what a page of the Talmud looked like because I passed by many times and saw the, the book open. But I actually never looked into a page of the Talmud in all of those years. And more than that, I never felt any curiosity. I never felt any envy. This was men's work. It was like, like fly fishing. I'm, that's a poor analogy, but you know, <laughs> something that belonged just to men. Let's let's per se perhaps it was like putting on tefillin. That's probably a better uh, analogy. What was that? Okay. As uh, as we'll talk about the exceptions that prove the rule in a moment. <laughs> Item B. This is more recent. I would call it in the category of late breaking news. On March 22nd of this year, a historic event took place in my community, Riverdale, the Riverdale, Jewish, uh, the Riverdale um, Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, when Rabbi Avi Weiss, who I understand was here recently, ordained a woman, a young woman by the name of Sarah Hurwitz. He gave her the title of Maharat. The Mem stands for Madricha. Ha, the He, stands for Hilchatit, which is... Madricha is the leader or guide, Hilchatit of Halacha, Ruchanit of spirituality, and Toranit of Torah. That's what Maharat stands for, Madricha, Hilchatit, Ruchanit, Toranit. At that ceremony, he also gave her a cloth, which is a, rabbinic, a document that says that's, that is given to a man when he gets smicha, when he is ordained. And in that cloth, he acknowledged that she studied Talmud and the Shulchan Aruch, which is a code of law, that she's fit to teach, that she can render halachic decisions. 
I'm sure that's the first time in Jewish history or near close to it that a woman has been given a document that says she can render halachic decisions, that she can perform all rabbinic functions except for the obvious ones in an Orthodox community, which is being counted in a minion and um, being uh, counted, being leading the services, and that she is a full member of the clergy. Now, why didn't he give her the title rabbi? Largely for political reasons. Rabbi Weiss also is the head of a yeshiva. He's, does, has, he's responsible for the fundraising. He's responsible for helping his students find jobs. And um, he's faced already serious, uh, not competition, but uh, critique and, and delegitimation. And um, so he's burdened by that. And he felt that to give her the title of rabbi is just going to be too much of a political firestorm. Why did he ordain Sarah Hurwitz, and why now? She's a lovely young woman in her 30s. She's a mother of three little boys, twins among them. It's a confluence of four factors. One is that she is, has been learning for many years. She studied in Israel. She studied in Drisha Institute in New York. Um, she also studied privately. In fact, Rabbi Weiss confided in me that his synagogue spent $30,000 in educating her. Um, she's learned all the subjects that men do for smicha. Secondly, she actually took the Bechina, the same test that Rabbi Weiss gives to his male rabbinic students in his yeshiva, which is called Chovavei Torah. It's a it's, it was an objective standard, and she passed well, and um, which is what that really is a statement is that it's not some genetic factor, but that it's an intellectual, it's a mastery of the text to get uh, to be ordained. And the third reason is that she has actually served as the assistant rabbi without that title for the last six years. He has served as basically her con first congregational assistant, and she got the title of Madricha Ruchanit, spiritual advisor. And he felt after, after six years, it was time for a proper appreciation and a proper credential. In the conversation, in the conversation, he was intending to do this not on March 22nd, but last November, and he was going to give her the title Moratenu. Moratena, which means our teacher. He felt this is a title of honor, and his beloved teacher, Nechama Leibowitz, carried the title Moratenu. But he let this be known uh, to a number of people, and the reaction, largely from the feminist community, was this is a step backwards. It sounds like she is a nursery school teacher or you know, a, 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 uh, maybe even a high school teacher, but not the equivalent of a rabbi. In the course of the conversations, what came out, which underscored the need for a proper title, is that a young man who is the assistant rabbi in Rabbi Weiss's congregation, Rabbi Stephen Exler, who's called Rabbi Steve or Rabbi Exler, doesn't have smicha yet. He's six months or so away from smicha, but he's called Rabbi Stephen, Rabbi Exler, and she is called Sarah. So he decided all the more reason to give her the title. What I want to discuss with you tonight is how we got from A to B. 
in a span of 50 years. 50 years is the blink of an eye as Jews count time. What brought about this monumental change? What is the entity of orthodox feminism that defines the passage from A to B? And how, in a religion that's so resistant to change, were we able to incorporate, was the community able to incorporate such sea change? So I want to do four things with you to answer those questions. One is to talk about my own engagement with this movement. Secondly, what are the issues? In other words, what has actually changed? Three, what's the underlying process or processes for a traditional system to undergo such change? And what, is the, what are the challenges that lie ahead? So my own engagement. Since I'm a transition woman, transition woman means that I engaged feminism as an adult. I didn't imbibe it with my mother's milk, as they say, as women under the age of 45 have. Um, I had to change many of my perceptions and self-perceptions midstream. So I think a brief narrative of my own journey shed some light on how we got to where we we, where we are today in Orthodox Judaism. As I said, I grew up in an Orthodox home and family. I felt it a privilege to be Orthodox, a gift, even though I was part of an, a minority, a minority of, of a minority in Seattle. I never felt it was a burden. I moved through all the right slots. I was very content with my, my lot as a young girl, as a married woman, as a rebbitzen, as, as yet served as a rabbi of a congregation for many years of our marriage, as a mother, as a member of the Orthodox community. So in that sense, when I came to feminism, it was more of an intellectual enterprise or struggle. I don't even like to use the word struggle so much. I, like, I prefer journey. But it was an intellectual journey or working through the issues rather than feeling malcontent or aggrieved or somehow disadvantaged or disenfranchised. Of course, there were some isolated incidents that made me think, you know, what is it about women that puts me in this situation? But I never really felt that I was suffering. I never felt depressed. I had a good friend. I have a good friend who co-wrote a, a Haggadah for Passover. And it went, throughout the whole book, I would say ad nauseum, as far as I was concerned, she con continuously um, compared the lot of Jewish women to that of slaves. And I, I had, I, I, I couldn't, it had no resonance for me. That's, that's, an, that's the most generous comment I can make about that. <laughs> <laughs> the rabbis were my heroes all throughout. They weren't misogynists. And I couldn't identify with other religious feminists and other feminists from uh, within the Jewish community, Jewish liberal feminists and Christian feminists, who painted a very negative picture of Judaism as patriarchy and the rabbis as, as misogynists. I actually remember in the late 60s, maybe it was even the early 70s, um, I was teaching at a, a college, a Catholic college, teaching Jewish studies at a Catholic college, and the nuns asked me, the nuns were largely, nuns and priests were comprised a great deal of the student of the uh, faculty, uh, asked me to give a talk on women, the Pharisees and women. And halfway through, it was actually 
the, the Talmud and women or the Pharisees and women, halfway through, I suddenly realized that what they really wanted me to do was to show them how bad the rabbis were so that it would prove how Jesus was a feminist. And um, these were my friends, and uh, so I could speak very openly. And I said, you know, I just realized what, what your agenda is here, and you want me to prove uh, something to you that's simply not true. Jesus came out of the same cloth as the rabbis. He was a, he was a part of the Pharisaic community. And whatever he learned, it was from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, or the rabbis, took many different positions on women. And there were some ameliorations from rabbinic thought. And in some cases, the rabbis certainly did not go as far as they could have or should have. And Jewish divorce law is a good example. In some instances, they progressed in terms of Jewish divorce law. And in some instances, in some interpretations, they, they ossified it in a way that, that harmed, harmed women. And I gave them the example of, of um, divorce because Jesus uh, um, took the, the, most, the harshest position in Jewish tradition, which was the house of Shammai, which said, that you can't, there's no divorce. Only, only, only reason for divorce is um, adultery. And that's basically the Christian, or that's been the Catholic position throughout the ages. And, uh, and that's the position that Jesus took. Whereas the rabbis, the rabbinic position that was accepted was that of the house of Hillel, which permitted divorce. Uh, not, didn't celebrate divorce, but it acknowledged that sometimes a long-term relationship just can't exist into, into the years, and that therefore divorce had to be a necessary remedy to a bad marriage. In 1973, I went to a conference uh, that, that actually changed the course of my life. A couple of years ago, I was interviewed by a woman uh, who was doing a study for Harvard Divinity School, and she actually was a study on, she identified women in various religions whom she considered were, had showed leadership qualities, and she wanted to find out what was it that affected them. And I, in the middle of the whole conversation, I said to her, you know, I know this sounds very silly, but it was a conference that actually changed my life. And she said, it doesn't sound silly. She said, I'm finding this from most of the women I'm in, from 90% of the women I've interviewed, I'm finding the same thing, that a conference influenced them. So anytime you think of planning a conference or going to a conference, <laughs> know that. Um, it was really the beginning of my journey to, through all of this. And perhaps if that, I hadn't gone to that conference, I might still be where some of my friends are, which is to look askance at the word feminism, um, even though, in fact, feminism and women's liberation has made many changes in their, their lives. The topic I addressed was feminism, is it good for the Jews? And it made me realize many things and started me on the path of realizing other things. One is that when I looked at the sources, I saw that there wasn't a single image of women on a pedestal, a view that I had actually been spoon-fed for most of my life. Uh, that Jewish women were uh, protected and, and honored and um, in, you know, not, in, not violated or harmed in any way. It wasn't simply, it simply wasn't so, because in many instances, Jewish women were protected, 
the attitude towards them was benevolence and they were honored, but there were also situations in which they were treated as inferior, having secondary roles, access denied, and, and, and rights limited. And I think the continued study of the sources is, is really so important. And I still, I've continued, but I have still have much more to go. The second thing I learned is that contrary to another view that I had been uh, taught, that had been instilled in me, that nothing ever changed, that orthodoxy <coughs> carried the tradition forward unchanged, it's, every word was eternal. There were actually so many changes, and not only from biblical to rabbinic times, but in every century and in every place. I'm going to say more about the process in a moment, but this factor of change, which is that whole issue which uh, distinguishes um, or theoretically distinguishes Orthodox Judaism from the liberal denominations, I have to say I think it's more a matter, oh, thank you, thank you. Mm, you even anticipate. <laughs> How does it feel sitting behind it? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I just. So the issue of change was um, it was more a matter of a continuum rather than a qualitative difference. And moreover, I could see that. The change in the, the, the Jewish community had undergone throughout the generations vis-a-vis -vis women's issues, I saw that as something very positive, a symbol of the dynamism and the organic wholeness of orthodoxy, rather than it being a, a fracturous uh, break with the past. The third thing I learned, which was very valuable, and I, I actually learned this from my husband, who was very supportive throughout my entire journey, and who in general is, has takes up new ideas with much, much greater ease than I do, um, is that you could criticize your own community and the earth would not open up and swallow you up. This was, you know, this was an eye-opener for me. And it was very important because I had no intention or no, and no desire to leave orthodoxy. I, I wanted to stay within the community that had nurtured me, that had given me so many gifts. So the fact that you could engage a critical eye and a loving heart at one and the same moment was a very important lesson for me and has remained a steady pattern for me throughout these past few decades. The fourth, and I'm not going to go into this, was just a parenthetical thought, was as I explored the issues, I found that feminism, which w became a new orthodoxy for many women, also needed some correction. Feminism wasn't sacrosanct, and, I, and a critique was in order. And that's not my story tonight, and I'll just simply say that feminism, I think, has self-corrected along the way, of, along the last 35 years as well. <clears throat> and finally, and this I did not acknowledge properly or as quickly or as, as uh, fully as I should have, but rather over time I've come to understand it more and more, is that the impact of feminists in the conservative 
reform and reconstructionist communities upon me was really great. And much of my agenda was shaped by the work of women and men in these communities. I didn't become a conservative or reconstructionist or reform feminist Jew, but my debt to them and my gratitude has, has really grown throughout the years. Um, I say that even though I know that, that it, some in the Orthodox community would further disqualify me for saying that, but it, it just happens to be the truth. So that in a segues into uh, this, another, uh, the last two points about my personal journey. One is that it's been a constant evolution. I'm not at all now where I was in 1973, or even 83, or even 93. Things that I thought weren't possible to change, or ideas that I thought were too daring or antithetical to my agenda or my community's values yesteryear have found expression in my life a few years later. <clears throat> so, I've learned that when someone says something, throws out an idea that um, is initially scary to me or, or unsettling to my equilib equilibrium, I've learned to say, well, maybe, or, you know, let me think about this, or I'm not sure, instead of the flat out no that, you know, was so easy to say uh, years ago when something rattled me internally. An example of that is the whole issue of women rabbis, which I have affirmed now for quite a while. But in 1972, when I first read about the ordination of Rabbi Sally Prizan, as I was sitting in a dentist's office, I read about it in the Ladies' Home Journal. That's where I got my, some of my Jewish education. <laughs> um, I actually had a tremendous feeling of revulsion. I, I felt viscerally, I, I felt I, somebody had crossed a line that should not have been crossed, and I made some um, unkind statements about Reform Judaism, which I later apologized for, you know, to the effect that once again, Reform Judaism was da, 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 et cetera. Um, in the 10 years that followed the ordination of the first woman in Reform Judaism, I began to look at the lives of Reform women rabbis, and um, I began to reconsider, <coughs> and uh, it wasn't not only, <coughs> I came to the conclusion, that not only it wasn't a violation of Jewish norms, um, but it was something positive. It's interesting that I, my book on women in Judaism, which was published in 1982, but I finished writing it in 1979, um, I have no, there's no mention of Orthodox women rabbis. No, I have a, a fairly um, long agenda in, in various chapters in the book, but I, I never touched that subject. But by 1983, when conservative Judaism ordained women, uh, I had already come to think that it was a good idea. And I wrote an article. I was uh, invited to participate in a journal of Judaism on the subject of ordination of women. And I said in that article, you know, I think that it's a good idea even for the Orthodox community, but not women as pulpit rabbis. Um, in 1990, uh, I spoke about the idea again of, at uh, Adrisha Institute, the Institute of Learning for Jewish, Higher Learning for Adult Jewish Women, and I spoke about the, to the, what I thought would be the most likely cohort group, the Scholars Circle, women who had spent a few years studying Talmud, and I was 
just very gently and uh, in the nicest manner told, you know, don't taint us with those radical ideas, even though at that time I also said, you know, ordination, the title, not serving in a pulpit, because I thought that was too radical. But in 1993 or 95, I forget, maybe 95, 6, and I have to get this straight, um, a woman was engaged to be a congregational intern at a synagogue, an Orthodox synagogue. And I, the New York Times reporter called and asked me what my view was, and I said, um, well, it's continuous. You know, he asked me if I thought it was a radical departure or continuous, and I said, it's continuous. You know, with where, And then, I'm sure you've all had this experience, somebody asks you a question, you give an answer, and then you say, what did I ever say that for? As soon as I hung up the telephone, I said, of course, this is the most revolutionary thing. And I, I have been saying all along, women couldn't serve in these public roles in, the, in, you know, in a rabbinical capacity. And there it was. So um, <clears throat> I have learned that what I think is you know, something uh, too far out may not be far out you know, five years from now. Um, so now let's turn to the issues. That's enough of uh, the phenomenology of being an Orthodox Jewish feminist. In 1973, there were seven areas uh, that I de identified as um, needing repair. One was the area of learning, uh, study of Talmud and rabbinic texts, which was basically still closed off in uh, in a systematic way to adult women. Uh, there were some yeshiva day schools. In fact, the one of which um, my husband was the dean, while he was also the rabbi of the community, that taught girls Talmud. But basically, Talmud studies stopped uh, for Jewish, or for Orthodox girls or uh, women, young women, um, you know, by the time they finished high school or sometimes elementary school. And that was taught in very few schools. Secondly, uh, leadership, uh, very few models, and as I said, the exception of Bruria and a few others like her proves the rule. We could, you know, I once got this uh, dictionary of Jewish scholarly figures, and it had some 11,000 entries, and there were 25 women. It spanned, you know, all the decades. There were 25 women in out of 11,000 entries. Um, the whole issue of language, uh, which Christian feminists were dealing with in the 19 late 60s and, and throughout the 70s and the 80s, um, you know, there was no, nothing going, no conversation about this. Um, and I'll come back to this in a moment. The wit, women at, as witness, that was another area. Jewish women could not serve as witnesses in uh, religious courts of law. Rites of passage, nothing for birth. No covenantal ceremony uh, equivalent to a brit, which is basically covenant. <clears throat> the best definition, I, 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 we have a friend, uh, had a friend, uh, blessed memory, uh, Willie Frank, who once defined a bris for us. He said, he, we invited him to our second son's bris, and he said, <laughs> he said, tell your, he couldn't come, he said, the night before he called and said, tell your little, little son for me that his loss is our gain. <laughs> <laughs> It's entering, entering, entering the covenantal community. Um, no such thing for Jewish women. Not that I'm suggesting any kind of ceremony. 
you know, the idea of entering a Jewish girl into the covenant in a formal way. We do. Are Jewish women part of the covenant? Yes, of course we are. But there's nothing that um, sanctifies this entry. It's just done as sort of natural part of birth. No celebration of this, this new addition to the covenantal community. Bat mitzvah, death and mourning rituals, um, no Kaddish, etc. Jewish divorce law, the problem of the Aguna, the anchored wife whose husband can keep her in chains uh, and uh, not free her if she wants a divorce, but he does not want to give her the get. Uh, and finally, the liturgical community, women not counted as part of the minyan, and not, and not having good sight and, and sound lines in many synagogues in the Orthodox community, um, and feeling, I would say, on the whole, peripheral to the liturgical community. Since 73, so much has changed, and I'm going to have to do this quickly because I want to have time for our conversation. So let me say, the most important area of change, is, to my way of thinking, is women's learning. There are, uh, in 1979, Drisha, which is called the Mother Institution of All Jewish Women's Learning Institutions. <coughs> it's... Um, there are several institutions in Israel, and many in Boston, LA, where women study Talmud and rabbinic other and post-Talmudic rabbinic texts. This is the major change in Orthodoxy. Um, women write in uh, religious journals. Um, there's no more of this. When I was growing up, I'm, I didn't hear it from my parents, but a lot of my friends heard it, which is, "Don't get too smart, or you won't find a husband." Um, that was that was that wasn't just in the Orthodox community. That was pretty widespread everywhere. Um, the um, so the Talmud study uh, and. Um, Institutes now, when I was uh, of the age of spending a year in Israel, there were maybe one or two choices, uh, and now there are probably 15 choices. A friend of ours just went to Israel with her daughter and to go visit all the Jewish yeshivot for women, which is uh, something that fathers did with their sons for you know many decades. Okay, the second is leadership. I call this the decade of credentials. Not only Maharat, which actually I believe is the interim title, I think it's going to flow into the title of rabbi, probably within the decade. Um, <clears throat> and um, I actually forgot to mention that Rabbi Weiss also announced, as a result of the feedback, that he's opening up a yeshiva. It's called Yeshiva Yeshivat Maharat. In other words, he intends to ordain other women, and in the first two weeks of making this announcement, he had 25 applications, which is quite an amazing statement about what's out there and what the feeling. And in fact, Aviva, Atara rather, Atara is uh, thinking about this for her future, and that's a sign. And she's got already, what does she have, three or four years to, before she can even apply, but yet it's on her agenda. So that is. Um, we'll see, maybe, maybe we will see Rabbi Atara's whirl in, in a few years. Um, 
Other credentials, women in religious in leadership in the community, women presidents of Orthodox congregations. In 1973, the women in my shul asked me to find out whether women could vote, because women in our shul, which was a progressive modern Orthodox shul, did not have the vote. Um, and so I surveyed uh, 10 Orthodox communities in uh, New York, and some of the responses were quite funny, which was one where the secretary said, what do you want to know that for? Don't bother the rabbi with such silly questions. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> um, and uh, as a result of the study that our synagogue gave women widows the right to vote, but not women. It took a few more years until they actually gave women. But most Orthodox synagogues in, the, in those years did not, women were not members. Oh, you had membership through your husband. Um, women are principals of day schools. They're teachers of Talmud. I have, and my niece is the teacher of Talmud. And the first year, some of the parents complained and said they didn't want their son studying Talmud with a woman. And she's becoming, she's become uh, the most beloved Talmud teacher. So women also have taken new titles uh, such as Toanot. Um, we, those are women pleaders in the Bet Din, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Yoatzot um, Halacha, which is halachic advisors, a degree that they get from an institution in Israel called Nishmat, in which actually they are more limited to decisions about family purity, but nevertheless it is a title conferred upon them. They are also called advisors, whereas uh, they're supposed to give advice to the rabbi to whom the question is asked, who then gives the answer that the Yoetzet Halacha has given him, etc. But there's been a short circuit of that. Now I heard from one of the Yoetzet Halacha that the rabbi said to her, here, here's the question. Don't bother getting back to me. Just go right to her and give her the answer. So. <clears throat> congregational interns, um, assistant rabbis with various titles, not only congregational in interns, but spiritual leader and... Um, and uh, educational directors, etc. Et Number three, the issue of language. Here I can't really say that there's been, it's a, it, this is a very complex issue. I, I don't even know what, you know, I don't, I'm not even sure what I personally would like to see or how far we can go in this. I, um, I understand the importance of a, a sacred, Liturgy and how you don't want to change the prayers that have been really sanctified by generations of Jews re repeating these this language, and I understand the concept of matbea shel tefillah, which is the coinage. I guess I'm not sure what's what's a good ex coinage of prayer, uh, and certainly we can't rewrite Torah, um, but I also know that language affects your perceptions. It's, it's so subtle, and maybe that's even why it's so powerful. And it's like water dripping on a rock that, you know, after 40 years creates a hole in the, in the stone. Uh, so that's what language does. It shapes your perception and your self-perception. And um, I don't know how we're going to work out some of those things that where we say you refers to the whole congregation, but really applies only to men. Some of that is changing. And certainly, I think the, lay, the speech of rabbis, of congregational rabbis, is changing. That is something I've noticed in many places, not universally, but 
You know, I think many more are sensitive. They don't say you or everyone here, meaning only the men. They're, I think the language is more careful. Uh, we have the Mishaberach, which is, in, in, includes the, the mothers, the, the matriarchs. And it's interesting, I've observed now in several modern Orthodox congregations, Debbie Friedman's Mishaberach, um, which is accepted and, uh, uh, as coming from Sinai, I think, or something like that. <laughs> uh, in the area of witness, I said that it, um, it's very explicit in the halacha, and so I don't know. I do recall when the conservative women were first ordained, they voluntarily said they would not do any, uh, any they would not undertake any tasks in their rabbinate that involved serving as a witness. Um, but that changed within uh, a couple of years. And, excuse me, in terms of the religious courts, women, uh, but I don't think it's going to change in orthodoxy. I have not heard of any instances. For example, I know at a Jewish wedding now, um, Women do recite the Sheva Brachot at, as part of the ceremony, or they read the Ketubah. I, as part of, I should save this for the rites of passage, but I'll just say now that in the area of witness, um, women have the Toanot serve in the uh, where they're allowed. They're actually not permitted in the or in the Orthodox community in America. They do not permit toanot, but in Israel they do. So this is an example of how this works sort of step by step, and sometimes in tandem, sometimes Israel ahead, and sometimes America ahead on women's issues. <coughs> um, in civil matters, this is not an issue because women are equal in, in civil courts of law. In terms of rites of passage, it's um, the Simchat Bat ceremony has, is in, has increased in, uh, in celebration, but I still find it a little baffling that it hasn't ca caught on to the extent that I thought that it would. However, there have been so many wonderful uh, covenantal ceremonies for little girls and called Simchat Bat or Zevet Habat, which is the traditional Sephardic uh, definition of it, that I think it's, it's, there's no going back on that and there, there are And it has been incorporated into a number of important sidurim. And so again, it's, in 40 years, it will be universal, I think, and it will, again, it will feel as if it came from Sinai as the Brit does. Um, in terms of bat mitzvah, here is a major transformation in my lifetime. When I was growing up, the word bat mitzvah actually meant, it was off limits, it meant you were a Reformed Jew. Even conservative Jews did not celebrate bat mitzvah. It was also off limits. Um, but today, it's the looking at my life and my daughter's life and my granddaughter's lives, uh, it, the transformation has been enormous. The um, truth is that there's no, no self-respecting Orthodox family today would not celebrate bat mitzvah for their daughter. I think I can say that and if if you fall into that you're if you fall into the category where you didn't have a bat mitzvah for your daughter I still think you're a self-respecting family but uh, <laughs> anyhow um, women read from the Torah at a bat mitzvah at a women's tefillah women's prayer or at the new partnership minyanim um, recently Yitz and I just came back from Israel last week we were at the bar mitzvah of our grandson and um, 
and our my my nine year old granddaughter, his uh, his 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 the bar mitzvah boy's little sister, said to her mother, she said, "I for my bat mitzvah, I'm going to read the Torah too," something I wouldn't have imagined even in 1973. In marriage, there are all kinds of new and inclusive rituals and rites. And in fact, JOFA, the organization which I've been involved uh, now for 13 or 14 years, is, has uh, online, jofa.com, has a whole list of rituals for women at a, at a marriage that really, she's no longer just the silent receiving partner in a marriage, and there are many beautiful rituals, so please, if you can go to that if you uh, are interested. Women recite Kaddish. Uh, Kaddish is an incredible, I think we did not know what we were deprived of for all these centuries, and we, Kaddish is an incredibly healing ritual in the presence or the, uh, the what's the word I'm looking for, the um, sort of that nurturing canopy of a community, the canopy of a nurturing community. Uh, and more and more women are reciting Kaddish. And here, too, it was conservative women largely who influenced, whose model influenced the, um, the Orthodox community. It's still not mainstream, but I remember when women first started to recite Kaddish, in many places they were not welcomed, or they were made to feel, or they were ignored, or they weren't answered, whatever it was. And today, it's far different. There's, there, it's changed from negative to acceptance, and um, from hostility to even a welcome in many places. In, um, there's a wonderful anecdote I have about Pesach, but I don't have time to tell that about Kaddish and Pesach. No, it's actually not that wonderful. Never mind. I was going to tell you <laughs> to ask me about it, but don't. Uh, in terms of Jewish divorce law, I have to say that I, there have been many ameliorations, but I still see it as basically a large failure uh, of the feminist community, the Orthodox community, the Orthodox rabbinate. It's still resolved on a, whole, on a retail level, which is case by case. There are lots of newspaper articles and protests and frustration, but there's actually been no fundamental change to the law. And it, there's, it's a huge waste of time and money of a woman's life and, and her energy, and a huge waste of the community and rabbinic efforts to work around a law that was intended to protect women but ended up to be potentially abusive of women. And uh, an, an unscrupulous, recalcitrant husband can really take many years away in the life of a woman and, and make bitterness in her life and her children's life. So it is a serious failure of the modern Orthodox rabbinic leadership it's a failure of the whole community not to apply pressure. It's a failure of feminism not to stay focused on the uh, need to change the law rather than to solve it case by case. And I actually fault myself as much as anybody else. I'm pointing a finger at myself as much as anyone because I haven't done enough to keep up the, ste the steady argument about about focus on the change of law rather than, say, solve this case or that one. And particularly, as I know, having engaged increasingly over the years the sources, I know that uh, there are precedents 
in the tradition that could solve it like that, that could resolve the problem and uh, the, at the broad level of halacha rather than special case pleading. And maybe you'll ask me about some of those. Um, I don't want to say that there's been no progress, but not, in, not enough, not in the right direction. And finally, in the area of liturgy, women aren't counted in the minion, and I don't think that they will be in the, any near time, near future. And I'm not, and I, it's a very complex issue in terms of role, division, and so forth. Um, but there are other venues for women to be, feel more, first of all, women's tefillah, which is actually, let's see, 79 to 2009, that makes it 30 years old, the first women's tefillah is now 30 years old, and it's still in existence, and they still celebrate bat mitzvah, and the girls read the Torah, they do the laning of their parsha. Um, when I was growing up, I didn't know what having a parsha meant, but you can ask a, a 12, an 11-year-old girl now in the Orthodox community, what's your parsha, and she'll know. I actually still don't know what my parsha is. I'm gonna go home and find out. <laughs> Um, so there's also recently the partnership minyanim, which are very interested. Some of you may have heard of Shira Hadasha or visited in Israel. There's also in New York City, uh, there in, and in Riverdale, my community, where women lead and participate really as, as equal members of the congregation. You also see synagogue architecture, mindful of women's role and place in the community. So what is the process? Just a few words about the process. I think it's a combination of reinterpretation. The process in any traditional system has to be use of the interpretive keys. It, has to, it lies in the hands of those who hold the interpretive, key, interpretive keys, and it has to be a process of interpretation. Because interpretation or reinterpretation of something that you have inherited makes it feel continuous instead of a break with the past, instead of creating something out of whole cloth. You are interpreting something in another direction, or you're finding a precedent that was a minor precedent and that wasn't used, and you're interpreting that and taking that line forward. So that's the most significant process. But as I've come to see, or as I look, stand and look back over the last 35 years, I see it's a combination of reinterpretation and facts on the ground. Facts on the ground sometimes are what prompt the reinterpretation of the sources. So it is this, uh, and Rabbi Weiss giving ordination was a really interesting example because he did not just do this on his own. He didn't just get up one morning and say, I'm going to ordain Sarah Hurwitz as Maharat. He sent out three rabbinic three letters to three important rabbis, and they're called she'elot, three questions to three important rabbis to get halachic answers. And he got three different answers from these three rabbis, each taking the answer in another direction but legitimating what he was going to do. That was a very important part of the process. I just have to tell you one very funny part of it. One of the answers was given by an important thinker in Israel, Rabbi Yoel Benun. And he raises, he gives models of, of women who are in positions of leadership, and then he goes through the whole issue of, well, Deborah was a judge, so how can we say women can't be leaders? And he shows how, what we can learn from Deborah and what the rabbis say about Deborah. And then he answers the other question about, 
Uh, is this going to be a big departure and pull women? Is it feminism? Is it reform Judaism? Is it going to pull women away? And so forth. And at the very conclusion, he says, and I see that women are even more diligent. And he said, and I see by the way they clean for Pesach. <laughs> so we finally collected our Pesach cleaning points. Um, now I want to just close with the challenges. One is I think we always have to ask, is it good for the Jews? And I see this basically as yes, but I want to keep my eyes open. And I'm finding it interesting, I should say of great interest, that, for example, Reform Judaism, which led the way in many of these areas, um, has been talking a great deal in the community about men feeling disenfranchised. It's actually a serious problem that men are, find themselves on the golf course on Saturday mornings because now women have taken over. And it basically, it's let women do it attitude. And there's an organization called Moving Traditions, which is now dealing with this issue that boys in the Jewish community, the Reformed Jewish community, or liberal Jewish denominations. That won't happen so fast in orthodoxy because of the concept of obligation. So men are not going to leave the synagogue because women come in, because men are obligated. They're there because they feel the obligation. But still, I think these are monumental changes in relationships, in structure of family, and um, in relationship to home and community. And I think we have to take care not to dismiss the critics who raise these issues, not just to dismiss them by, with slate of hand, but to keep our eye on, on some of these issues. Secondly, the challenge for orthodoxy, for orthodox feminism, is that I think we're at a crossroads. I experienced this um, not too long ago, sitting at a women's partnership minion. Um, I came in and I sat, as I like to do in shul mostly, to sit in the back row, because I also happen to be a people watcher in shul, and it's part of my spiritual experience, I must say. Maybe that's a rationalization, but... Um, but I, I sat there looking around the room and seeing that uh, I was the, ma the majority of women who were there, who got there before me early, were wearing talisim, and I wasn't. I'm not there. Maybe I should say I'm not there yet. You know, it's one of those things I... I, can, I understand and appreciate, but it, it's not for me, and I don't put on tefillin, although I know I have friends who do. I still see those things as, as men's roles. But I, it makes me think a lot about, you know, what are, where are we heading? Are we heading in the same direction as conservative and reform and reconstructionists, which is the definition of equality is identicality, totally interchangeable roles? For me, there's something in my gut that feels that distinctive roles for men and women are, are healthy. They're good. Now, maybe it's the power of conditioning. You know, maybe, maybe if you ask me in 10 years how I feel about this, I might give a different answer. But it has been a persistent feeling of mine that, you know, the rabbis, the same rabbis who, who brought you shiva and brachot and shabbat, you know, maybe they understood something about human nature and distinctive roles, which is what they define for men and women, that we don't all yet uh, totally understand. 
Um, so I don't know. My view about what should change and what shouldn't change, I have to say, is in a constant state of flux, or maybe I should say turmoil, but no, more, more flux. Um, but I think we, we need some to look at this and talk about this and define whether that's the path we're taking. And I would say within the Orthodox feminist community, if we get this conversation going, I think we're going to find very sharp divisions here. The, um, and I would even say further that maybe the Orthodox community has something to teach society at large, that you can have distinctive but equal roles. The second, the last thing I want to say about challenges is the power of the commanding voice. And I, I have to acknowledge, as an internal critic, which I see myself, um, that I feel I have lost in some, some innocence and a, a certain degree of personal piety and unquestioning faith that once characterized my life. Um, certainly the greater challenge to any Jew's faith in this generation is the Shoah. And, um, and Yitz has this quote with, oh, I meant to ask you, it's no, there's no faith I wanted to quote you here, but no faith as whole as an unbroken faith after the show. What? No faith as whole as a broken faith after the Holocaust. After the Holocaust, no faith as whole as a broken faith. Um, so it doesn't fall into that category, the challenges of feminism. But this whole issue of, of questioning authority and tinkering with the law and tinkering with fixed parameters and wondering about divinity as a source for all belief and action does take its toll in some ways. So I think a challenge is how do we continue to hear the commanding voice even as we say human beings have to change this or that inequity or hallowed tradition or even more explicitly, how do we hear the power of the commanding voice um, as we say, there's injustice in the tradition vis-a-vis -vis women, and we have to change it. So I don't know the answers to those questions. I, I do know, especially to the third question of how you keep faith and feeling in the divine and as you wrestle with all of these things. But lest you think that it's only erosion of faith, it isn't so. I also experience the opposite. The exhilaration of seeing a woman uh, seeing a woman read the Torah, of girls studying Talmud, uh, the joy of an adult bat mitzvah, hearing a brilliant female Torah scholar, or experiencing uh, observing the growing self-esteem and service and commitment as women assume their rightful place in the chain of Jewish leadership. That, too, is a large part of my journey, not only of my personal journey, but also of the contemporary Jewish experience of the entire community. So it is an amazing time to be a Jew, to be a woman. Thank you.